Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Jack Gibson. Jack Gibson, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. I'm excited for the convo and see where we take it. Absolutely. No, we're really excited. You've got a very interesting background and uh, there's a lot to unpack here. So rather than <laughs> me, me try and get things. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, and your many achievements up till today and, and where you're going in the future? Well, I'm in the States, uh, Michigan. I was born and raised in Ohio. I tell people that I was mostly raised on a farm, although I didn't live on a farm. My, my mother uh, grew up on a farm and uh, so she would take me there quite often. And that's where I learned the principles of hard work and oh, fantastic. dedicating yourself. I'm sorry. I said that's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with yeah. working on a farm. Yeah, that's where I got my uh, work ethic from is is primarily from my mother and just growing up on the farm. And so I got to see, you know, two different perspectives, which is very similar to the rich dad, poor dad story. Although my my real father, he was not a he was not poor by any stretch, but he was a professional and he worked for as an arson investigator. So he had to figure out if somebody burned if their house burned down or their building burned down, their business burned down. He had to figure out if they did it on purpose or not. <laughs> And uh, he did well in his professional career. And then there was my other dad, which was my uncle. He didn't have any children of his own. There was five um, nieces and nephews. And so we got to see from him how he grew wealth. I got to see from my my real dad how he preserved wealth because he inherited quite a bit from his father who built up a manufacturing business and he preserved it in the market. Um, my my wealthy uncle, my, my rich dad, he grew three different businesses uh, from a farming operation to an insurance book to a party rental um, type business. And he, when he passed at 56, uh, unfortunately, young age, he, um, he left his brothers and sisters, uh, you know, several million dollars. So I got to see firsthand uh, the different perspective of working a job, which, again, nothing wrong with that, of course. I mean, that's <laughs> how most people, you know, you support their family and it's a great thing. But I got to see how real large wealth is made from growing businesses and, you know, just continually improving the cash flows of those businesses so that they become more valuable over time. So, yeah, that's where it all began. It's sort of sounding like you're drawing a distinction between the ability to, 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 to generate wealth and the ability to preserve wealth. Is that, is that true? Is that a fair, yeah, a, a I think fair that's assumption? Pretty yeah, that's a pretty fair assumption. You know, I saw my dad, you know, he inherited, you know, quite a bit, a few million back I don't know however many years ago, it was probably 25, 30 years ago when my um, grandfather passed. And, you know, I don't think that money has really grown that much, to be honest. And it's great. I mean, of course, he's done very well. He's kept his money in the market. He's never sold when the market has dropped, and specifically the stock market. And he's done a very good job as a steward of that money, preserving it but he didn't grow it. My uncle started from scratch and he grew a multi, multi-million dollar portfolio by 
building businesses. So that kind of gave me that entrepreneurial spirit. So <laughs> the week that changed my life, I uh, was working on my uncle's farm. He had just purchased a bunch of acreage and expanding his operation. So I got to have the privilege of going and clearing off all the sticks and debris off the land. And it was terrible work. I mean, it's the worst week of my life. I turned in a timesheet for like 20 hours. I think it was more than that. It felt like 80 to 100 hours worth of work. And it gives me a hundred bucks, you know, and I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> I just broke my back for 20 hours and I get a hundred dollar bill. And that same week I'd started in a direct sales company selling nutrition supplements right for my, you know, college dorm. So I made a $200 sale and put a hundred bucks in my pocket and that took 30 minutes. So that was when it dawned on me. I never want to have a job again. I always want to be in business. And as the great business philosopher Jim Rohn says, profits are always better than wages. So that was when that moment I decided I'm never having a job again and I'm only going to pursue profits and growing businesses. And so that's where my entrepreneurial journey started was that week. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine actually. I used to work for my, um, my uncle who, um, for, among other things, I remember cleaning bricks for him, if you can believe that. I had to knock a wall down and clean the bricks. That wasn't fun. Um, but it's, uh, it does focus your mind because when you're sitting reading and then watching the financial markets, you realize that I always say that the, the the money's not heavy, certainly not as heavy as, as, as those bricks I was working on. But so you've, you've got this entrepreneurial spirit about you. And I think that's something that people either have or, or haven't. And maybe, maybe you could change my mind about that because some people enjoy the, the aspect of working for somebody else, having the security of working for a company and having all the big decisions taken for them. Other people are excited by the opportunity to be able to create their own business, to create something that other people want and to, uh, and that whole process excites them. So once that spark was excited within you at this point, how did you then go about um, explore, expanding it further? Because you learn from your two dads, but you know, that's, that's not a manual in, in success. What happened from there? Oh, that's a great question. And I totally agree. I mean, I think to a certain extent, it is a spirit that people either have or that they don't have. Uh, I, th I think certainly people can learn and evolve and adapt that spirit if they really decide that that's the course that they want to take. But certainly, uh, there's a lot of advantages to not having to worry about running a business and, you know, all the different uh, intricacies. I mean, I have a very difficult time getting my mind to shut off with all the different things that I have to do constantly, right? And that can take a toll on you and that can cause burnout quicker. So, um, yeah, there's definitely, definitely pros and cons to both aspects that you take. Um, for me, you know, when I first got started in business, we had a very good um, training system that I picked the right company or got lucky, uh, the right opportunity presented itself, um, you know, when I was very young. And their uh, philosophy was um, personal development. And they even had Jim Rohn, who was the you know, probably the most famous business philosopher in the that's ever walked. I mean, he trained Tony Robbins. I mean, he's uh, a lot of people quote him all the time. 
And he was, uh, a, he was actually hired by the company and he would come in and speak to us and train us. So being able to have that kind of exposure when you start at 19, and that's certainly a huge advantage to be able to be poured into with that kind of um, positivity and success principles and life principles that one would need to, you know, to really, um, you know, forge their own path and their own success. So that was, uh, that was a big part of it. And then the sales training that I got was um, incredible. I think that, you know, if you're going to really uh, be successful in business. I mean, anybody who's uh, owns a business, you've got to be good at sales unless you somehow, I don't know how they do it. They get the company going without being good at sales. I don't see how that works. So I really got to learn, um, you know, all the principles that have then helped me to start other businesses as well. But that particular direct sales business, we grew it into, I think we have over 9,000 um, independent contractors slash sales reps at this point. And it's, um, it's a very, it's an incredible business. And then from there I started other companies as well. So what, what's, was that your business or were you started, sorry, I'm slightly confused whether you started it or whether it was a company that you worked for. Yeah, it was a direct, so it's a direct sales, multi-level marketing business. So I was, I did not start it. Uh, it was already, when I joined, it was already a billion dollar company. So I just plugged into an, an existing infrastructure right. where they already had the, they had the products, they had the, the whole deal already kind of, you know, set. So I just got to plug in and start selling. So you went in there and you, you, you kind of learned from them. You got this training. I remember when I worked at NatWest, we got a Brian Tracy course. I don't know if you know Brian Tracy, but I thought that was... I thought he was one of the Thunderbirds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which was great. It was, it was, it was really inspiring because I know exactly what you mean. If you get that at the right age, it was almost like, well, if even if working at a bank isn't for you, it gave you the motivation to try and make the best out of the time and the life that you have. And, and I think that's, that was really important. I mean, he started from... Uh, being sort of broke in a flat and pulled himself out out of that scenario because he hit rock bottom and then worked his way up. But with your situation, did you feel as though you had money with which to take a risk, given that your father had inherited money and presumably that would come to you at some point? You know, when I first got started, I had probably three or four hundred bucks in my checking account. (laughs) I had washed some boats the previous year, another, you know, terrible job that, uh, I knew I never wanted to do again. Uh, it wasn't as bad as washing bricks though. I think you definitely got the worst job ever. Yeah. Yeah. Was, there's a few of those bad jobs, but you know, it's, uh, it concentrated the mind. I can tell you. Well, you know, it gives you appreciation later in life when, you know, you're not doing things like that and you can do what you love and, and make good money. So yeah. there are uh, there are benefits to those types of jobs later in life. Um, but yeah, it's it's been um, a, a real challenge to grow in business when you start with no money, even though, yeah, I, I guess I had a fallback plan with knowing that there was some money that could come my way at at some point, but I never really put much stock in that because my thought was always, well, that, you know, my parents could spend that money and blow it by the time I get it or a lawsuit could happen or, you know, they, um, the market goes collapses and it's gone. So I never, I never counted on that. Never really thought much about it. Didn't really even 
really care to ever get it. I wanted to forge my own path and create my own success and build my own wealth that I could be proud of. Now, if I ever do get it, I'm not going to send it back. So I'll just tell you that. Right. <laughs> um, I hope that, you know, I hope it comes someday, <laughs> but I hope it's a long ways away because uh, I love having my parents around. Um, of course. But yeah, I started, you know, 300, 400 bucks and that's how I grew my business. And I was at one point I was down to like 10 bucks in my checking account. I wasn't making sales. So I went and sold my CD collection for, uh, I know it's really dating me telling about talking about selling CDs, but I sold my CD collection for 40 bucks. I gave me enough money to put in a newspaper ad um, in the local paper. And that's what gave me a client that, I mean, pretty much transformed everything. He, he ended up sending me 20, 25 other referrals and from there, my business just exploded. So I think, you know, when your back's against the wall, you just have to be resourceful and figure out what, what resources do you have at your disposal? How can you convert those into um, opportunity? In many ways, that's, that's a better path to take because it forced you to be creative and entrepreneurial. Whereas if you just get given money, then you don't appreciate the value in it. You don't. And I, you know, I, I see this, um, I've done business with this younger gentleman who's a, a trust fund baby. I mean, he, he gets a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, What? you know, and yeah, <laughs> it's insane. Um, and he's only, you know, when he started getting it, he was maybe 24, 25. And I just see the way he treats people and talks to people. And it's, it's just not, um, the type of person that I want to be around. So like just a few weeks ago, he was going to do a, we were going to do a deal together, but I basically just said, I'm, I'm not interested. Just the way that you show up is, this is not somebody I want to associate myself with. And I think that's exactly to your point that he got something that he never earned. So he never had to become the type of person that's capable of, you know, properly handling that kind of responsibility and being a, a, having a, going through all those adversities that you need to go through that then mold you and keep you humble and form you into the right character. So I am glad that I didn't get anything handed to me. I I had a great upbringing. I mean, I I never was, uh, there was not lack, but there wasn't a lot handed. I had to build all my businesses, everything, all my wealth from scratch. So that gives me a true appreciation for the type of person that it caused me to become. One of the the common refrains we've had on the show the last few years has been the inability of the educational system here in the UK to teach anything about um, wealth creation, wealth management, anything to do with money. Basically, is that is that something that's common to the states as well? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, are you talking about the states? Because that. <laughs> is exactly what a lot of us that do understand money and finance, that's our biggest complaint about the school system, is that there's virtually nothing taught whatsoever. In fact, my son, he's a 15, he's a freshman in high school here, must be the ninth grade. And we were just talking about, you know, he's been telling me like, dad, I, I'm, I'm not getting anything about finance, nothing. 
And, you know, I'm glad I have you to teach me this because I know it's not coming from the, the school system. I mean, they don't, um, I don't even think they teach them how to balance a checkbook. I mean, they get nothing on taxes. The most important subject that dominates the rest of your life and you don't even get 10 minutes devoted to it. Yeah, so that obviously creates um, an opportunity for people like yourself to educate as well. But it's um, it's a shame that it's 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 not covered at all, to say the least. I think that the main difference also, in perhaps with American um, attitude to business and the UK attitude to business, is you have a much more open attitude. In other words, it feels like Americans want to do business. They want to know what you've got. They want to. Uh, they want things to succeed, or so it feels like. In in the UK, it doesn't feel quite so open. It's almost like they're looking for reasons to perhaps say no. I mean, of course, there are exceptions. Um, I always thought that that might make it... Um, well, it's it's obviously one of the reasons why America, America is the uh, the most successful country in the world, isn't it? Um, I mean, a lot. if we look at a lot of inventions, they've come out of the UK... Um, some of our out of our universities and out of our you know labs, but then they just get picked up by you know American um, uh, you know American companies that uh, see the value in it and raise the money and then create huge companies out of it. And you know that that that's that seems to be instilled within the education system that you're in a place where you can do. And whilst we might look at it sometimes and think, "Wow, isn't that over the top?" It has actually sort of furthered that 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 whole idea that that there is opportunity out there, much more so than than we have, say, in the UK, where we feel very much like um, that that type of behaviour is 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 kind of almost frowned upon. Wealth is almost like something you you hide, you don't show, and you, you keep your entrepreneurial spirit slightly under wraps. Yeah, that's that's a great point. You know, I'm not uh, I have not been to the UK yet. I it's definitely I can't wait to get there. I mean, we want to we've actually were we were just talking about this with my wife. We can't wait till one of our uh, marketing events is your training events is in London or, you know, in in the UK. So I haven't gotten to experience, you know, the culture that you're talking about. I can say that, yes, and agree, we are definitely very open um, with, you know, your successes and how much money you're making. And um, we we do show off the, uh, the lifestyle here. I think it's good in certain respects where it helps to people get the vision and it helps people to see possibility and understand, you know, opportunities. You know, on the flip side of that, it creates this, there's this enormous wealth gap here in the U.S. that just continues to go, you know, grow further and further apart. And uh, that created a lot of the social unrest that we saw, you know, a couple of years back uh, with all the rioting. It was, I think a lot of that had to do with the, the enormous wealth gap. So there are pros and cons to that. There's a downside to it that I think that over the next decade and or so, I think it's going to become even more pronounced and potentially become more of an issue. There's um, a, uh, a, a, you may have seen the series of The American Office. I don't know if you've watched it, but... Um, no, love the show. Yeah. I love the British version too. Well, the, Briti- the British version, if you have a look at the episode where 
what's his name, Brent, where he does that presentation, right? Where he's he's sort of showing off. Um, we look at that and just go, "Oh my god, that's that's awful!" You know, as in, in England, we would or the UK, we would say that that is that's why it's so funny because he's he's going so over the top, and. I, I'm not sure that translates because in America it is more over the top. That would work really well, and and it's I I've, I heard that apparently when some American people saw it, they didn't think there was anything wrong with it, and that's part of that joke, which is also obviously why there's a different version of it because some jokes translate, some don't. But some of the best comedy, to be fair, that's out there comes from the American series. There's Friends. There's Modern Family, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I mean, I love Ricky Gervais. I think he's absolutely brilliant. But I just thought that that particular scene really summed up the difference between the two. So if you, if you go back and have a look at that, you'll, you'll see what not to do in the UK, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's good to know. I'll be uh, studying up on that when we make our trip over. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, I, I don't know. Tim's been to Japan. So I, I assume that that the way we are here is the way the way you are. So your your Americans are probably the the loudest. Then we're more conservative. But we compared to the perhaps to the Japanese, we're probably just you know really loud. The equivalent. Would you say that's fair, Tim? Yeah, I think that's that's probably a, that's probably got the right the right the right d- degree of uh, variation. Mm. Uh, what I what I find fascinating. I don't know. Uh, Jack, have you read a book called Liar's Poker? I haven't. I've heard of it. It's by Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis's first book. And it's an account, basically it's an autobiographical account of his time at Salmon Brothers in the 80s as a bond salesman. There's a fascinating sort of little snapshot in it where he, he talks about, he refers to the, sort of the Monty Python's flying flying investment bankers from Britain and there are these guys that are sort of basically clapped out and that they sort of know they're en route to the scrap heap anyway. But the thing he, he highlights about them is they have these frayed, bedraggled black socks. They're wearing these little black socks that aren't, that aren't you know, they say they've lost their joie de vivre. And the, 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 what he goes on to say is that, um, you know, when, when, when basically Wall Street firms came into the city in Big Bang, which is mid to late 80s in London, you had guys who basically they were partners at old school stockbrokers, and they got you know a few million, few million dollars, few million quid, whatever, and they instantly banked it and retired and bought a country pile in the, you know, in the, in the southeast, and that was it. And the reader is sort of left to sort of extend out the the dots and extrapolate just a little bit because the the comparable example would be in in a U.S. context would be someone like Mike Bloomberg who if memory serves, was at, I think, Salomon Brothers and got fired and he got a $10 million, um, you know, a severance package that he used to develop Bloomberg. So he managed to parlay $10 million into several billion dollars. And that, to me, drove home the distinct the difference between American attitudes to money and success and, and British ones, which is, we, you know, we, the first hint of vague success, we just bank everything and, and retire, whereas you guys just use it to go on to do better things, bigger and better things. Right. How much is enough in America? Just a little bit more. Right. It's it's like my guitar collection. I've got, I haven't got enough or what? I've got too many and not enough. It's like, 
That's always the way. And the, isn't and, it? The, and, the, and your pulls amps don't go all the way to eleven. That's right. They've got to go <laughs> to eleven. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You know, that's a, it's it's a blessing and a curse. I was just I don't know probably even three weeks ago. You know, I, I came to this realization, and it was a really uh, kind of a pivotal moment for me. I believe, um, and this is this is very recent. Where, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, we we've got um, five successful businesses to various degrees. I mean, a couple of them are very strong. A couple are startups that really don't make much money. And um, I. I it's been comparing myself to some of these other guys that I see that are influencers and they have these enormous downloads of their podcasts and their social channels. And, you know, they're selling all kinds of, you know, products and services through their, you know, their influence. And, you know, I'm not doing that yet. And it just was really getting me very, very down and, and kind of getting into dark thoughts, right. Of man, what's wrong with me and all of that. And then it just hit me. I'm like, gosh, you know, you got multiple streams of passive income. You're doing fine. You've, you don't have to work if you don't want to. Why are you not completely happy? And there's this real culture in America of comparison. We all, to some degree or another, I think, if especially, I mean, if you have ambition, in America, you have you will fall into the comparison trap, and you will start to look at whatever success you have as just not good enough, comparative to where you know you think you should be. So that's kind of the that's the downside of what you guys are describing of the difference between you know the cultures is we get some success, and then we're like, okay, how do I leverage that into more success? And then it's just this never-ending hamster wheel that you can get on that's very, very dangerous. I mean, Paul, Paul's already highlighted uh, accidentally one of these points in relation to comedy that, you know, you have a series like, well, you get a series like Friends, but before you have Friends, you have in the, in the 70s, you have a British series called Faulty Towers by John Cleese, which you've probably heard of, if not necessarily seen. And it's widely viewed as as the pinnacle of basically you know, British British comedy. And they never made twelve of them. Yeah. Whereas if an American production company had had sort of got onto that, it would have it would have done exactly what they did with Cheers and Friends and Frasier and all of these super successful series, which is just keep throwing manpower at it until you can you know turn it into a like a sort of a, a Ford style production line of comedy. Yeah, it's, I mean, those are long running shows and they just, I mean, when something's working, they just run it until it absolutely does not work anymore. So, yeah, so we, maybe, maybe the problem is that sort of the Britain, Britain by and large is a more artisanal culture. Whereas when, when you guys do something, you know, you, you know, you do it right. There's a, there's a statistic I, I've probably forgotten, but there's a, there was a, there was um I think it was actually a, I think it may be a converted Ford plant in the states, um and in the early forties during the war they they turned their production over to making bombers for the uh, for the war effort, and I forget exactly what B whatever the B number it was a B fourteen or a B twenty four or whatever, but basically this this plant this converted Ford plant could I think knock up. A completed B B twenty four bomber every day, 
and it was it, it, i think it was even more than that i think they were actually banging them out every every few hours and it was such an extraordinary feat of you know of basically creative i mean creative is maybe not the right word for it but manufacturing capacity that they could churn out one of these you know these 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 devices one of these engines um, in a matter of hours, and it had God knows how many thousand different moving parts. And it was when you when you when you you, you read about these kind of events, you realize there was no way on earth that um, Germany or Japan could ever have won that war because they were faced with this industrial leviathan that could just effortlessly create, build, and and churn out stuff. Yeah, that's one thing that the U.S. has been very strong in is being able to um, figure out. Uh, what people are need and anticipate what they want when they don't even know it. You know, there's that speaking of the cars, you know, if you on the car manufacturing and production, you know, one person was asked um, a question of like, why did you, you know, why did you get into cars or, you know, it's just kind of about the beginning. And he said, well, you know, if I, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a faster horse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they they would have not been able to, in their minds, imagine this possibility of a you know a mechanized vehicle. So, that's um, America's in- incredible at uh, being able to create demand for something that were there's no demand that ever existed before. I, I hashed I hashed this story up. It's the Willow Run plant, and Ford built one B twenty four Liberator plane every sixty three minutes. Wow, that is just stunning. That's insane. I didn't know that. That's crazy. So in terms of um, building wealth, what, what would you say the most important principles of doing that and, and retaining it, I guess, too? I think, you know, in my inaugural issue of the Passive Income Playbook, which is a free e-letter that I send out every Saturday at noon, um, I've got about... 26 issues in. I've been very consistent with that. I had not been consistent with my short form video. <laughs> it's that so frustrating. <laughs> but that's one part of my marketing campaign I've been very uh, consistent with. And um, in it, uh, the very first one, I said, you know, there's three principles that I believe are critical to building wealth. And the first one is everybody heard it. We all know it. Most people don't do it. Of course, it's live below your means. In order to build wealth, I mean, you got to have money, and to create some money that is investable, well, you got to have that gap between what you earn and what you spend. So, a lot of people in America have a big—they have a big problem with this. They can't even get past step one because they want to keep up with everybody that they see on social media. You know, it's the modern day keep up with the Joneses type deal where we just feel like we deserve something. Um, and yes, you may have created the money and deserve to get it, but that doesn't mean that you should. So if your goal is to build wealth and to build security and financial independence, then you have to start with stage one. <clears throat> Once you've mastered stage one and in, you've got a gap and you're banking a lot of money or even a little bit of money, whatever the whatever the deal is, the faster that you, the more that you bank a percentage of your income, of course, uh, mathematically, the faster that you're going to accumulate wealth and all of that. But then stage two is where I see a lot of entrepreneurs 
go wrong is that they invest their money into risky assets. I mean, I've seen so many young entrepreneurs that really, you know, their businesses were cranking when the money printing was going on during COVID. And they were, I mean, they were making tons of cash and they took that cash and instead of putting it into more conservative investments, things that produce cash flow, things that are going to be stable, things that can't, you know, really um, get wiped out, things like real estate, rental real estate, um, commercial real estate, um, syndicated investments. They, uh, they put their money into risky stuff and a lot of them, you know, they lost it. And some of them lost it all. And you're talking about, I know one, I work with one gentleman in particular. I mean, he probably lost 200 grand and it, it took, it wiped him out. He was just doing all kinds of risky stuff. So getting your, your, your dollars into things that are kicking off passive incomes, additional streams of income that it's relatively safe and conservative. That's, that's the most important step in my opinion. And of course I didn't uh, follow that advice when I was 22, I'd started making up I started banking up some pretty good cash while I was in college, took 50 grand, put it into tech stocks. That was 2000. And as we know how the story ends on that, that was the bubble, uh, dot com bubble. And it wiped away a lot of that money that I'd worked and saved so hard. I mean, I think about how many parties I could have thrown you guys <laughs> with that 50 grand while I was in college. Oh my God, I could have created some incredible memories. And instead, somebody else uh, in the markets got my money, right? <laughs> right. But it was a 50 grand lesson. So, and it's a lesson you never forget. It, it, I never forgot it. And I learned from it. And I didn't make that mistake again. Like everything I did from that point forward was much, much cons more conservative and, and, and very, very careful with my money and what I did. Because if, if you accelerate that story forward and say you'd put that money to work into tech stocks, you know, three or four years earlier and it had gone to the moon, that might have been the most disastrous lesson to learn because if you then continued, continued to, to, to play that trick, it would have, the damage would have been a lot worse further down the line. You're exactly right. I think about that all the time, how grateful I am that it happened as quickly as it did. So the lesson came sooner rather than, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've turned that money into a half a million dollars. And then I think everything is going great. I think I'm on top of the world. I think I know how to invest. And then that gets all, you know, erased and taken away. That would have been a lot lot uh, tougher and more difficult to handle. So uh, yeah, totally aligned with that um, thought process there. How do you how do you view the markets at the moment, be that real estate or be that you know, the, the public, the listed stock markets in the States now? Well, you know, I've never, I've not built my wealth on, on the stock market. I'm not against it. I have money in the market, but the predominant um, the, the bulk of my money, probably 95% that I've made has come through building businesses up and focused on investing back into my own companies. Cause I always think that's the one I can control. That's the stock that I have, uh, 100% ownership of and control over. So I want to put my money back into my own businesses first. And then from there, um, putting it into assets that um, have shown a remarkable resilience to any type of economic downturns or stuff like that. You, uh, you want to talk to Tim about that? Tim knows quite a lot about that particular subject. 
Okay. Value investing. All right, cool. We'll, we'll, take, we'll take this offline later. <laughs> All right, perfect. <laughs> what you're, what you're saying learning. is basically I'm Tim's fun. Open. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. So, yeah, we do a, I do a lot of uh, syndicated investments now. Um, I have a rental real estate company. I do have rental property. I think, I mean, that's uh, it's really helped me grow wealth. But at a certain point, you know, in a certain stage in your life, they get to become a bit of a, a hassle and distraction. So you want to consolidate and do bigger deals that require less uh, oversight, less, you know, um, management, so to speak. So I've upgraded and played the Monopoly game, taking those four green houses, the rental houses, and converting them into one red hotel, which in the real life uh, equivalent of that is a syndicated investment where you're pooling your money together with, uh, you know, a group of a small group of investors, but a group of investors that are then splitting up the, the, the high cost of capital that it takes to get into those types of deals. And that's where I've typically the last 10 years I've been making around 25% annualized returns. So that is, I'm going to continue to do that type of stuff because I think that, um, overall, I don't really trust the market right now. Uh, I, I wouldn't put any money into the stock market personally at this moment. I, it just seems like it could go either way. I don't, and I think it's more likely to go down from here than it is to go up. But presumably the, uh, any kind of property investment is ultimately going to be somewhat subject to the, the vagaries of the interest rate cycle. No. Oh yeah, of course. Um, you know, we, with the interest rate rises, we've definitely seen a softening of the market. However, what I can say about the real estate market here in the U.S. is that, and this was, you know, I publicly said for the last several months, I said we're not going to crash. Mm. And the reason being is that it's very simple. We have a, still have a very much a shortage of housing in the U.S. And even though interest rates have gone up, I think, 19 times their basis over the past um, year, you would think that that would crash the market. But the reason mm -hmm. that it hasn't, in my opinion, is that there's just too much demand and there's just not enough supply. So we have seen a softening, but it's just given us an opportunity to buy stuff at better pricing and get better deals. And we're not competing against people that are, you know, bidding it up 13 times. I mean, we've had houses where we were going up against, you know, 20 other bidders. And if you're buying investment property, typically that just doesn't make sense. But presumably the, the property market is, is the, pro the property market is to the market for individual properties, what the stock market is to the market for individual stocks. In other words, they're not, we're not comparing necessarily apples with apples. They're not, these aren't easily co comparable asset classes. They're not fungible asset classes. So, you know, I mean, we don't specialize in property, but it is said that, you know, it's location, location, location. So it can be very, very sort of regional specific and very idiosyncratic. Whereas in, in exactly the same way that the stock market can be a disastrous asset class as a type of asset, but that doesn't mean that there can't be great individual opportunities within the stock market. No, oh, 100% agree. I'm Yeah, and I'm definitely referring to a, a broad market type of play versus, you know, looking at individual um, asset classes within the market. 100% agree with you on that. So with regard to property in America, uh, I know from a, uh, some American friends of mine that you have to pay property tax 
um, a percentage, I think, of is it of the value of that property, depending on the state that you're living in. And it is actually quite high, I believe. Is, is, am I right in saying that? Yeah, typically, you know, on the low end, it's going to be 2% of the uh, assessed value. And there are, it just kind of goes back to the individual uh, regional specific locations that, you know, that you guys are just um, referring to. Like, for instance, where we buy a lot of property is in Indiana. And in that state, the taxes are some of the lowest in, in the country. So you can buy rental property and it makes a lot more sense from a cash flow perspective because you're not getting eaten up and eaten alive by, you know, the um, secondary home investment home type tax burden. Um, and it, it also to speak of, you know, investing into property for cash flow right now, if you're trying to do that in the coastal markets, any of the coastal markets around the country, you're typically going to be priced too high to where it would even make sense. I don't think a lot of them even they might cash flow by positively by a couple percent. So I, that, I don't like that type of investing. To me, that's a lot more speculative in nature. And, um, you know, it can be absolute boom or bust, but it's not, to me, a predictable way to grow wealth. If, you, if the capital doesn't grow, um, then over, if you, so if you pay 2%, so 2%, um, on a million dollar property would be $20,000 a year. So obviously over 10 years, that would be um, $200,000 that you've paid in tax. So 20 years, you're approaching nearly half the value of the property. Um, that, that is, I mean, that's massive in terms of tax. And that's probably, if it's a 2% tax, that could be, is that one of the lower ones? Because they could be higher than that. Oh yeah, a lot of them are much higher than that. I mean, that's that's crazy. So you could end up eventually paying ta like hundred percent tax of the property that you're living in. So wouldn't that suggest that renting is better, or is it just uh, obviously built into the cost of renting, so it's even worse? I think it's built into the cost of renting. You know, I tell uh, in my financial education company, Indestructible Wealth. You know, I've told people all the time because I get the question all the time, like, mm. should I buy? Should I rent? And to me, it's more of a function of how long are you going to stay there? If you're going to stay there seven, if you're planning on and life can change, of course, and if your your intentions could uh, be good to stay for seven years or more, which I think is kind of the magic number. Um, but if you don't stay for if you buy a house and you're not planning on staying it for for very long, then you're really taking a big risk because number one, if the property doesn't um, appreciate, you know, in those first couple of years, and then you go to sell, I mean, the selling costs, commission costs are going to eat you alive. So you could buy the house for 200 grand and then sell it for 200 grand and you lost, you know, 20 or 30,000 bucks mm. um, with, you know, within a couple of years because you, well, the market didn't appreciate and your selling costs um, ate, you know, aid into your, your sale. Plus the tax that you paid in between. Exactly. So I say, Hey, if you're going to buy a house, okay. And you really want it. And regardless of what you think, the, where you think the market's going to go, then pull the trigger and get, get your house and enjoy it. And you're going to be able to, in all likelihood over a seven year um, time period, <clears throat> you're going to have enough of the principal mortgage paid down, 
you should have to be able to outlast any maybe short-term market blips where the market corrected, interest rates went high, and you know the, the value of your house dropped quickly. You should be able to have enough time to you know overcome those types of obstacles and grow it enough to where you're you're <clears throat> outpacing the selling costs, the commission costs, and all the closing costs that we get saddled up with. So if you've done well on a property, is it better to look to a bigger property to trade up? Or is it better to buy another property as well and rent that other property out? I know obviously that depends on a multitude of factors, but what would you as a baseline recommend? Well, I'm I'm a big proponent, like I've described, of you know just playing big boy Monopoly, and that's <laughs> pretty much how I teach my kids. I play the games with them. Um, I've been playing, you know, I was playing Monopoly. I probably played it a hundred times with you know with my oldest son. My youngest son gets distracted too easily, so that didn't work out. But our uh, my philosophy is, you know, get. build up a a portfolio of multiple rental properties that you hold for uh, a multi-year time horizon. Make sure that they're, you know, everything you can to to buy them smart and make sure that they're positively cash flowing throughout so that you don't have this liability that you're paying on waiting, you know, for the appreciation to kick in down the road. And then at a certain point in your life, I mean, I think your, your, your situation and your circumstances will kind of dictate um, your, your move. But I've liked to, you know, trade those in when they grow and take that equity growth and put it into bigger deals that are easier to manage that have proven to be more profitable and have produced higher returns with less um, with less stress, with less management, with, you know, I always say rental property is somewhat passive. <laughs> it's uh, probably, I call it uh, semi-passive in nature because you still have a business that you're running with income and expenses. If you can trade yourself up into bigger deals, um, like syndication, where, you know, you're, like I said, you're pulling all your money together to get a bigger deal with other investors, then those are 100% passive. And now you can really let your money just kind of let it rip, let it grow. And um, it's been a pretty successful formula for us. So if someone was starting out now, um, given the rises in property prices in America and the position of interest rates, would you say that there's, there are still opportunities out there or do you look at timing and you say, well, not quite now, or maybe in about a year's time or how, how do you, how do you time getting into the market is probably what, what I'm asking here. Yeah, that's really tough. I've never been really good at uh, timing anything. I mean, I'm more, my philosophy is more buy real estate and and wait versus waiting to buy real estate. So I'm not going to try to time the market. And generally speaking, um, you know, just trying to time the market in the stock market has not really worked out too well for me either in that regard. So that's why I'm uh, largely just a, a buy and hold and try to sit it and forget it type investor where I'm not trying to stress out and figure out what's going to happen next. I'm just trying to look for great deals, things that I believe in, 
uh, that I'm going to be willing to hold for the next minimum five years to, you know, more of a, a decade type play. That has worked tremendously better for me than any sort of timing. I to, to specifically answer your question about the real estate market, you know, I don't know. I, I you know, we have a real estate company and <laughs> been doing that for seven years. Uh, we've flipped over 300 homes to investors. And of course, we have our own portfolio and we're buying right now. We're we're definitely buying. I mean, we're very we're, mo- we're a little bit more selective right now in our criteria. But um, we do believe that this is a great buying opportunity um, with interest rates, what we think are probably very, very close to their peak. I, I just don't see interest rates going up much more from here. I think they're going to pause, may go up a little bit more, tiny bit more. They're going to pause. And then when they start um, dropping them, I think then we're going to see a, a pretty substantial boost to the uh, to the whole real estate market in general. So do you, do you hedge what you do with other things like maybe investing gold or um, I know you what you've said about the, the, the property market uh, being your your fundamental area of investment, but mm-hmm. as you were saying with the the people during the pandemic who were making a lot of cash out of one income stream, if everything is in that one income stream, y- you may need to think about a hedge. Now you did mention at the top of the show that you had multiple businesses, so it could be that you just have businesses in other areas. So I'd be interested to hear about those. But do do you also look to invest in other things that would be um, not in the same area, so end up being a hedge? Oh, 100%. I believe strongly in having exposure to multiple asset classes. I do have some gold and silver. It's not a huge hold. I do have that exposure for um, just the insurance more so than anything. I don't really look at it as too much of an investment it's more of hey, if the if you know it hits the fan then i've got some uh, a store of money that has been the same store of value for the last uh, several thousand years right but um, i'm doing a lot of um, digital gold right aka bitcoin actually uh, started a Bitcoin mining company, which wasn't my intention at all. I was just simply looking for a way to mine uh, Bitcoin myself, but ended up, we bought this huge shipping container, uh, like what you'd see on the back of a big semi, a 40 foot long, you know, shipping container. We converted that into a hosting facility. And then I realized, well, I've got a lot of spots here to put some of these machines in that I don't have the money to buy. So I'm going to start um, offering these to other investors. And so we <laughs> backed into accidentally um, owning a, a mining company. Um, and the only reason really I did it is because I believe in Bitcoin. I believe in the future. I know it is very, very volatile. Um, uh, but I, you know, when you believe in something and you really uh, have done your research and you understand it, then to me, it's okay, then let's back up that belief and put our money where our mouth is. So I am uh, unrelenting in my, um, what I see as the the next five to 10 year play, you know, particularly on Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think there's some other good, great, you know, smaller projects that are going to do fantastic, but uh, I don't invest a lot into those just, just to 
extreme risk that they have. Out of the smaller ones, what what are what are they? Because um, we we have people who are very interested in this um, in this subject, um, even if they're sort of off the beaten track. Yeah, I have a so the way my opinion and philosophy is, you know, when you're getting into crypto, I mean, the 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 a lot of the smaller projects, the altcoins which I know they say an altcoin is anything but Bitcoin. I think of an altcoin now as anything but Bitcoin and Ethereum, just how uh, how extremely large of a play now and an asset that um, Ethereum is. Um, but I have about 50 other altcoins. You know, I might oh, put right. you know, maybe as little as 500 bucks into some, you know, and some I put up to maybe three grand, but it it's a very small percent of the total portfolio. And, I look at those as what happens when Bitcoin goes up, so goes the rest of the market, typically is what we've seen, where the altcoins can then, you know, Bitcoin goes up 100%, the altcoins can go up 1,000%. Um, we haven't seen that happen over the last three or four months since Bitcoin's, you know, been popping back up yet. But I do believe that, you know, that's going to play out uh, again. So I want exposure to some of those um, smaller projects. Um, Matic is probably... Um, top of my list in terms of uh, the other altcoins, um, but uh, there's there's a, a bunch of other projects that I'd have to pull up my uh, portfolio even be able to tell you what I've got. <laughs> yeah, right. Like um, like Cardano, maybe. I like Cardano. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you you're right. I mean, there's so many interesting little. Um, what would be regarded in the world of the stock market as the the penny stocks that um, they they are? I mean, what you've described is, I think, exactly what one should do with them. You put you put an amount of money in there that you can afford to lose. You sort of buy it and forget it. And if it goes up a lot, they're going to go up like a hundred x, or they're going to go to zero. It's one of the two, and it's. It reminds me almost of a kind of, and Tim is the expert on value investing. It reminds me a little bit like the Ben Graham uh, approach to to investing, where he took a, well, Tim will describe it much better than I will. But the only caveat is you, you can't really value these these coins. They're impossible to value from a inverted commas value investing point of view, in which case I can... I f fully understand why Tim completely ex ignores them and um, invests in, in things that you, that are tremendous value, but yet you can look at the metrics and, and work out whether they're going to go up or not. Whereas with these, it's just pure, pure, it's, specul it's pure speculation. Pure, pure speculation. speculation. Like, so you've oh, got yeah. some, of the, some of the coins that went up were just linked to AI. Now, I don't even know whether what they're doing in AI makes any sense or not. But because they've, they've got some connection to AI, chat GPT comes out, boom, you know, everyone's interested in AI coins. And that may peter out and they may all crash and go to zero. Who knows? Um, and so, so I love the area of speculation. I love the, like being able to look at the charts of these things and how interesting they are. But at the back of my mind, I really respect what Tim does because it's, it's 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 so much more consistent, if that makes sense. 
hundred percent. I mean, what Tim's doing is the way that I believe anybody should be focused on building long-term sustainable wealth. <laughs> that is absolutely the play. And yeah, look, I'm not promoting, uh, and I don't do a lot of speculation, but I just think that, you know, there's a coin like life peer. I think it's a, this will be a one that will pop, you know, in the next, uh, crypto boom when, whenever that should happen, probably, sometime in the about 12 months, you know, within the next 12 months when the next Bitcoin having takes place, but who knows? Exactly. I mean, it could go, it could go another two, three years of the winter, maybe long, you know, like it's nobody, nobody really knows where it's, where it's headed. But I look at that one. I mean, it went up, I think I bought it at three bucks and it went up to a hundred dollars in a few months. And it's an incredible return. And then of course, I didn't sell it off. I didn't uh, know how to time it. So then, it, you know, it plummets again. But I think coins like that, that have shown a big uh, pop in the past, I think those will be very likely to pop again because there's so many investors that are familiar with them. And um, they'll, they'll go into those types of projects once again, once the, the market does heat up. But again, I just, yeah, I'd like to reiterate it's, it's a very, very small percentage of the total portfolio, and it's, it's, it is gambling. You, you absolutely are not doing anything other than legalized gambling online. <laughs> so, Tim, on that, when you're, you, when you're value investing, the sectors that you look at, will they ever rotate into anything that's um, sort of tech focused or? Yeah, we have owned, I mean, we've owned tech stocks in the past. We've owned, we don't own banks for personal preference reasons, but we, we have some financial exposure. We have some financial platforms. Um, the, the main reason why we're not in things like, we haven't been in things like tech is simply because the, the, the value criteria we use is so stringent that a lot of companies will never, ever qualify. So, for example, if you if you take classic Ben Graham metrics, the kind of stuff that he was writing about in the Intelligent Investor in the the late forties, he's talking about things that have a price to book of less than one, you know, a price to earnings ratio of of single digits or or very low teens, all these kind of metrics, and for things to to, to get into that sweet spot, it's not exclusively what we're looking at, but it's just a start of a ten. Things like, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Netflix, Google, many of those stocks will never, ever qualify. They'll never, ever be cheap enough to earn. Whereas we just apply the same kind of criteria across the board. So if, if tech stocks happen to meet it, great. The, the, the bizarre thing at the moment, is, as you know, is that, that for us, the cheapest part of the stock market by miles is um, eight mining companies and, and more bizarrely still, it's gold and silver miners. They're the cheapest part of the stock market that we can find by miles. But you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily assume that to be the case because a lot of people would think, well, these are quite speculative in their own right. And mm. of course, many of them are, particularly the junior miners. But the, the bottom line is if you, if you restrict your search just to things that generate a ton of cash and have little or no debt, you'd be amazed what, what pops out. I've been reading, doing a lot of research, and I would definitely agree that uh, that's probably one of the best plays that I've seen is is gold is gold stocks. Um, and it's it's the most bizarre thing when you consider, you know, the, if you like the news flow, the sort of the, the quote fundamentals unquote, which is, you know, there's acutely high, uncomfortably high inflation everywhere. It, it seems 
And you would think that one of the tried and tested inflation hedges, namely commodities companies, ought to be the default investment for people who are concerned about hedging that risk. And the reality is you can't give these things away right now. But that doesn't matter. It just means, you know, maybe we have to be a little bit patient. But, you know, the, 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 uh, you, I dare say you could say the same thing in relation to the property market, which is if everyone is biting your hand off to get into something, the chances are you probably want to be looking elsewhere. Yeah, it's a pretty good way to say it. I mean, you know, it's it, but it's still pretty um, staggering how many people that, you know, fo follow me on my platform, Indestructible Wealth. They talk a lot about real estate, of course, it's, and there's very few that actually do own property. So, yes, we had this incredible kind of bubble that happened during the money printing times. Um, but overall, you know, people still, if they bought those properties, there was lots of deals that you could find, you know, within the market still that, that did make sense. So if you focus on those, those value deals in real estate, just like you focus on the value deals in the stock market, um, you should be pretty, pretty good regardless of, you know, what's happening at the, at the macro level. There's so, a guy, I don't know if you know, Morgan Housel, uh, investment writer and blogger, but he, he made the point in, in, in his first book, which is for most people, their property is their best investment. And one of the reasons it's their best investment is it's the one that they don't sell. Right. <laughs> they, they so it says a lot about the, the psychology of investing. Well, that's like the, the coffee can portfolio, isn't study, it? Exactly. We're all dead. There was a study that was done of, of people who had the most success in the market and they were uh, they, they were, were dead. They were dead. Yeah, dead. And then the second category was the, the, the people who forgot that they had an account with that brokerage firm. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just shows you how hard it is, doesn't it? I mean, because, of course, when you see profits, you want to take them. And, um, you know, you, like you said with the, the, the stock, oh, sorry, the, the, the altcoin that you bought, it goes to $100, you think... Well, yeah, if you'd sold it $100, wouldn't that have been great now that it's, a, whatever, just guessing $10 or so. But it, from $100, it could have gone to 1000 Then you'd be saying, well, why didn't I hold? I sold it 100 So it's th that is what I like about the game of trading, um, because in some ways it is a game. It's a psychological game, which you obviously like, Jack, because you, you play another sort of risk game where you, you play high-stakes poker, apparently. Yeah. When you said the book Liars Poker, I'm like, all right, I'm in. It, it's just about <laughs> poker, but no, I guess indirectly, not. Indirectly, <laughs> indirectly. Indirectly, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done really well in poker. It's just, a lot of people look at it as a luck game, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really not. I mean, in the short run, it is. If you just play it for one session for a few hours, I mean, it's, it's all, uh, it's, a lot of it is luck. But if you play it over the a longer period of time and you play the odds and you're patient and make the right moves, you know, it's a very lucrative game. But the problem with it is it's not a passive income investment. So I look at that as more as fun money than anything, even though it does. I do pretty well with it. So I, I, I only like passive money. I, I want passive income, multiple yeah. streams of passive income. That's what sets me free. So it's not a very English thing to ask, but what's the most amount of money you, you've made at, on poker and the, the most you've lost? I mean, you'd have to answer Now that. we're talking. So these are the questions that I like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the most I won in one night was 25000 And the most I've lost, I think I usually 
tap out around 10,000. Right. Wow. Okay. So, not bad. Um, I made a hundred grand last year playing it one, one day a week. Whoa. Or when I say actually one day, uh, every other week. Would you play online then? Or do you, is it face to face? It's crazy. I found this home game here when the casinos shut down during COVID, everybody grabbed, graduated or I said gravitated towards this, um, home game. It was in, um, about 50 minute drive and I was getting bored out of my mind. <laughs> so finally I'm like, Kara, my wife, you know, she's very conservative. She had me on almost on lockdown. She's like, you can't go. I'm like, Oh, I gotta go. Like, this is, this sounds too good. So I uh, started playing in that game and there was, uh, there's times where there's 50, 60, 70 grand on the table. Wow. And and now you, you're obviously known to be good, right? So what happens when that hap when you go in and they will people still play or or do they see you and go, oh, hang on a minute, I'm gonna lose my shirt here. I better not. There, you know, the the game started when I started two years ago. It was um, we were running two tables of nine, so we had a every week we'd have a solid eighteen, and now we're down to there's usually about six of us that show up. So there's been uh, a lot that have dropped off. I think they realize they maybe were in over their heads. Um, it's unfortunate because I really like playing against them. <laughs> right, it's, but are you? obviously not tempted to play online then um because I, I i i don't know anything about this world other than i have some friends who absolutely love poker and you know have home games and you know dabble online a little bit but just all for fun and my only knowledge of it is that they say when you're playing a home game the worst people to play are beginners because they don't know what they're doing so they're really hard to read um, and that that's it. So they can be they're like the, the they're the mad goat. Exactly. You just have no idea what they're going to do. W would you say that's true? I don't agree. I think really? the beginners. Yeah, I think they're very easy to pick off. I mean, they. I I would hundred percent take a game against beginners. They're going to make so many mistakes that you can exploit. So I'm. I mean, there are there can be some that are tricky. Where, but overall, you start to after a couple hours, you're going to start to see their patterns. Do you look for um, tells the, as well? The trickiest guy is Alpesh. He's uh, he's yeah, you know, he's from India. He's he's crazy. He's aggressive. He bluffs all the time. He I've won a lot of money from him, but he gives me fits because I don't know where he's at. I mean, he could put out two thousand bucks on you know as a, a final bet after the last card, and you're just you're just guessing what he's got. <laughs> so um, right. those are those are the tricky players, the ones that are real aggressive and experienced. So you're referring to pick, sorry, Paul, sorry. Go on. No, 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 you carry on. I was going to say you're referring to uh, picking off the beginners reminds me of uh, I was an investment conference in is either is either Vegas or or Nashville. Um, um, either way, it was it was uh, in the states four or five years ago, and one of the guys in a, before the main event, he was speaking in a sort of private forum. He was a dedicated short seller, and uh, he's he used to especially look for opportunities to sell to sell short in the in the listed restaurant space, in like cafes and stuff. That happened to have a listing because apparently these are businesses that lose a lot of money because it walks out through the till. 
and uh, he said, basically, my 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 preference is I, I look for wound, small wounded animals by the side of the road, and then I run over them a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little bit, uh, you know, aggressive, but mm. uh, we'll go with that. Um, you know, all roads lead I, to Rome. Yeah, right. One thing that I um, I made a commitment to as well with my poker winnings is I donate 50% of them to a startup church that um, my best friend and uh, pastor, he moved from my hometown here, Michigan, to Arizona to start this church. So he needed money. And uh, you know, I said, you know what, I'm going to feel more purpose and I'm going to feel a lot better about you know extracting the money from these guys that if I know it's going a big chunk of it is going to a, a really great cause. So when I started, made that pledge, I started winning even more. So doing God's work. Doing God's yeah. work. So in terms of online then, um, do, do you ever, oh, do, yeah. you, do you ever play? I did. I got addicted to it. So I had to shut them all off. Yeah. My life made, yeah, it's too addicting. It's too easy and accessible. You know, if I go to a home game or I go to the casino, you know, I have to drive 45 minutes. I have to book out, you know, a, a, almost a day to do that. That's a lot uh, more difficult to to make that happen. So the online, um, even though I wasn't losing when I played online poker, I, I didn't win a lot, but I wasn't losing money. I realized that this is very counterintuitive to growing my businesses and living the life that I really want. Don't you lose an advantage, though? Because if you're going to try and read someone you obviously can't read them through the computer but if they're sitting right in front of you and you're looking for a little twitch or slight delay in the way they put their chips down or whatever the tells might be that you're looking for you have that advantage with your experience and you can spot it probably a mile away from people that don't even realize what their tell is but you can't do that online and that so that must be just like a money management strategy and playing the odds when you're playing online would that be correct? Absolutely. Yeah. You're just looking for patterns and you're looking for the math. So you have to be much, much more attuned to what are your odds of completing a given hand versus what you think you could be up against. I've found it's a lot tougher to beat online play, especially, you know, I guarantee you there's people that are on an online, you know, poker table that they're all on their phones together and they're mm. collaborating in terms of what each of them has. There's there's no way that that is controllable and there's no way that's not happening. So I am, I'm not really that interested in playing a game where my odds are, you know, not so, not so good. I want the odds to be in my favor in anything I do, right? Business, gambling, exactly. or what, what, um, investing, whatever it is. I want to make sure that even if it's tilted 51% in my favor, then over time I'm going to win. Exactly. And, and now we've got AI as well to contend with. So we, you wouldn't know if you're playing against a bunch of AI bots that are all going to, you know, outplay you and work out what your strategy is. Yeah, that's what's really scary. Uh, and I think it's going to be a, a huge uh, problem in the poker world is I think, you know, in a, within a, I don't think it's going to be very long. You're going to be able to have, you know, a little chip in your uh, listening device in your ear that's artificial intelligence telling you what to do mm. at, at, what, at what time and what point in the hand. It's going to be guiding you and saying, well, for example, this person's heart rate is elevated, so they're probably bluffing. Or this person is, they're, they just put out a huge bed and it's like they're taking a walk in the park holding their wife's hand. 
they're they're not bluffing, right? I think you're going to see a lot of that come into the to the mix that is really going to disrupt the game and uh, kind of scary. And do you wear the you know the regulation dark glasses when you're playing so no one can see your your, your pupils dilate? <laughs> <laughs> I, I should. I think I probably have some tells that I'm not aware of, so I probably would make more money. I just don't want to be looking through sunglasses for an eight-hour session. Right, um, right. I did play in the World Series of Poker, the main event. I plopped down the ten grand. Um, it was a, a bucket list item that I had dreamed about while I was playing. You know, started playing quarters in the college dorm. That's when I started playing poker back in '97, '98, and um, so I'd always dreamed about being Chris Moneymaker, you know, on the World Series, winning the million, multi-million dollar purse. And uh, so I played and it was an amazing experience. I lasted all of 10 hours. So that was the fastest that I've ever gone through 10 grand <laughs> in my life. <laughs> wow. But I mean, given how successful you are, have you ever thought about doing a poker course to teach other people? I've thought about it, but uh, there's so many guys that uh, study you know, poker and the odds. And they're, I mean, they're 10 times more advanced than I am that I, I feel, um, probably like I would feel that imposter syndrome, you know, <laughs> even though I do know enough to teach something it's, and then again, it's always uh, building up an audience and taking on something new. And I've already got uh, five different things on the plate that I need to eliminate, you know, a couple of those. <laughs> Right. So what 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 have you got? What's um what what are your businesses at the moment? Yeah, so I have the the biggest one yet to this day is the direct sales uh, multi level marketing business. Um, that's been going for twenty five years. I don't I work it very 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 part time, um, but that's still uh, still a very successful business. And then uh, high return real estate. Uh, we still uh, we sold about five million in property last year. So it wasn't a it's not incredible by any stretch in the real estate game, um, but it was still, you know, some nice extra money. And then we also, I started um, the Bitcoin mining company. Um, that's still in startup stage. I mean, we have, we're fully online and operational. We're mining Bitcoin um, as we speak, but um, it's not a large uh, business yet. It doesn't take up a lot of time. My tech geek partner runs that side of the, uh, the business. And then um, I've done some syndication capital raises. So we have, um, I've done three raises for storage and car wash where I brought in investors and, you know, made money off OPM. And then indestructible wealth. This is my primary passion right now. I started this because I simply wanted to have a fulfillment project. I kind of got a bit bored and felt like I was missing something in my life. So this gave me the outlet of helping to mentor younger entrepreneurs and teach them about money. Like you alluded to, there's, it's not being taught in schools and financial education for, you know, the vast majority of Americans is extremely low. So I started this platform as a way to give back and also a way that I felt in the, you know, if I grow it over time, that it could be a great marketing um, and influence type of arm for my other businesses. So, for example, the things that I talk about in Indestructible Wealth, well, those help to drive investors into, you know, all the other, into the real estate uh, businesses, into the Bitcoin mining operation. You know, I've even brought in people um, 
that are, are really good for the direct sales business, you know. So I have an offer um, that I think can help people, uh, various stages of their life, wherever they're at. Um, and I can reach them through the platform, you know, just pumping out lots of content and, you know, doing the playing the long game like what you guys are with your podcast. So what was your best investment and what was the worst one you ever made? Best investment was betting on myself. You know, anytime I've put money back into my own businesses, you know, it doesn't always work. But if I do it uh, consistently, I mean, the uh, returns that I've gotten from that are, uh, have been pretty staggering. If you're talking about the best investment in terms of just uh, pure ROI and, you know, returns would definitely be the self-storage. I mean, that asset class is incredible in the U.S. And um, worst investment, well, <laughs> tech stocks in 2000, <laughs> right before the dot-com bubble burst. <laughs> right. <laughs> that could be, uh, that could be right up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you could look at it and say, you know, buying into crypto was a, a bad investment. You know, like I, I didn't get in early in the game. Um, I got in, you know, Ethereum was right around 500 bucks when I started buying in. And obviously it went up to five grand and then back to a thousand and now sitting at what, 18, 1900. So you could say that uh, crypto wasn't a great investment. I haven't made a lot of money on it yet, but I think that the game is, uh, it's a long game and it, and let's talk about it in 10 years and then we can really see if it was a good or a bad investment, right? I mean, that's the, that's the tough part about investing is that you don't really get to know and see if it was a good or bad investment till many, many years later. So anything that you do, whether it pops in a year or drops within the first year, it's really not a great indication of how good of an investment that was. And that's where I think a lot of people go wrong is that, you know, they, they buy something and then it drops and then they don't have any idea what they bought. They don't know the value and they just automatically panic sell. And then they sold off an incredible asset because just because of short-term price movement, when in reality over, you know, a long horizon, it, it was an incredible investment. So what secrets are you trying to, or uh, what sort of mindset what, as well are you trying to instill on your sons and also to the people that subscribe to your, your, your program? Yeah, the, the secrets that I'm teaching my kids are just thinking abundantly, um, trying to teach them. There's a lot of bad apples out there, unfortunately, uh, that I've found doing business. And I didn't know... Uh, what I didn't know, I, I grew up with a certain set of values that I was taught of uh, being integrous and keeping your word and always operating at the highest level of integrity. And in the business world, unfortunately, um, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of people out there that don't share those same values. So I've, my trusting and naive nature is, has really, um, at certain points, got me into some bad situations and hot water. So I think that's one of the main lessons too I'm going to teach my kids is just being really careful about who you decide to partner up with and who you want to place your trust in and um, let them 
really earn that trust over multiple interactions before you, you know, just decide to dive into business with them. Um, the other thing is really just trying to make sure that uh, helping them guard their their pride and their ego. Uh, I think I've seen that really uh, not only hurt myself over the years, but um, it's kind of the downfall of of a lot of people is that they get some success and then it goes to their head and then uh, then they make really poor decisions from there. So just basic principles of sustainable long-term success, not looking for shortcuts. Anything in life that is really worthwhile usually happens over a, a long multi-year period of time. Right. Um, to, so, and also so to think about the long term as well in terms of investment. Yeah, I was just reading a phenomenal book. Um, it's called The Wright Brothers. And I'm starting to appreciate history a lot more. Um, you know, I think that's probably just a symptom of getting older and more wisdom, right? Um, but the one thing that um, uh, it really stood out to me in the book, I'll quote it, uh, the press was asking Wilbur, right? You know, uh, Wilbur and Orville, the ones that uh, created the first mechanized um, airplane. And they, um, they said that, you know, basically asked him if he had conquered the air. And he, Wilbur says, a man who works for the immediate present and its immediate rewards is nothing but a fool. I was like, wow, drop the mic. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this guy just laid it down of what everything I've ever thought about success is. It's never short term in nature. Yeah, I think that's also such a good point because with our society, with the ever shortening time spans for, you know, TikTok videos and, and messaging and Twitter and all that stuff, that's really short term focus. And you, you alluded to it as well about the people who are making money during the, the pandemic, which was a period, an unusual period, but one that was uh, presented opportunities, but looking outside and longer term would have said, you know, to anyone, you, you've got to be thinking whether this is just the short-term opportunity or whether it's something that's going to last. Um, it, it, it does actually, you know, it, it pays to be, to try to think about the long-term and governments do it as well. They, they're, they're chasing the short-term all the time, short-term votes, short-term popular ideas. And, we do need more long-term thinking. It's why at the moment we have this problem in the UK where we're not energy self-sufficient. We haven't built enough power stations. Um, we're in a position where the government are trying to move us off fossil fuels without any alternative. And they're just, they hadn't, if they wanted to do that, they should have started that a long time ago in a much more gradual process. And they're just trying to push us in the short term to something that feels more trendy and vote winning rather than practical. So there's so much to be said for thinking about the long term. I couldn't agree more. So Tim, is, is there anything that you want to ask Jack before we go to media picks? Not that I can think of, no. Okay, brilliant. We rarely have ones to avoid, but I've got one that I'm going to sh share with you guys right now. And that is... Um, it's the the lake. I love Guy Ritchie. I, I think Snatch is one of my favourite films of all time. I can watch that 
and rewatch it and still love the film. Um, but his latest film, Operation Fortune, is an absolute mess. And I, I just, I couldn't even finish it. So I was very disappointed with that. And his previous film, The Gentleman, I thought was very good. So I, I didn't like that at all. So I'm, I'm going to put that one forward as one to avoid. Tim, what, what have you got? I have a, a book this week. I haven't finished reading it. So it's, it's still work in progress. It's called Esoteric Hollywood Sex, Cults and Symbols in Film. <laughs> By Jay Dyer, and I've just finished some of the some of the stuff relating to uh, Stanley Kubrick, wow. uh, and one of one of the things that we've been there's been a constant question of, of our pods over the last three years has been is everything to do with COVID cock up or conspiracy, and I'm minded to believe it's a combination of the two. But having read or having started to read esoteric Hollywood, sex cults and symbols in film, I'm now minded to believe that. There is predictive programming and the revelation of the method going on in plain sight on our TV screens, and 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 we never really never really appreciated what was going on. So they're playing games with us, Paul. They're playing games with us. Have a look at the the Amazon logo, and you see what it looks. Have a close look at it and see what it looks like. Given what you've just said, mm. Mm, have a close look at it and see what comes to mind. Apparently, that's okay. used a lot in 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 logos it's the idea and, and in films as well um so so jack what what have what have you got for us yeah it's a great question i you know i i love the books by robert kiyosaki particularly mm. i mean Dad, poor dad was one of the ones that really um got my mindset clear to get into real estate and i'm very grateful for that book i don't know if if I don't know if I ever would have if I hadn't read that book. I mean, it's truly transformational. And then he went on to do Cashflow Quadrant, which really explained how the flow of money works um, throughout, you know, our economy and how we grow wealth. Uh, but then, you know, I'd stay away from his podcast. Um, I think that he's a doomsdayer. Everything is always about the last six, seven, eight years. He's all he said is the market's cra going to crash. The market's crashing. Well, of course. I mean, the market's going to crash. I mean, that's what they do at any certain point of time. But um, on the uh, the history of the market shows that over the course of time it goes up. So always predicting crashes, I think, is um, is not a good philosophy. Um, as far as uh, fun things that you can you know do, or the show Yellowstone is about as good as it gets. <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, it's not a, a positive, uplifting show, though. So if you want mind candy and you want to a uh, little bit of escape and you like action, that's a great one. Um, great. And then um, I think that um, a book that a lot of people have not, it's not on a lot of people's radar, but I believe that it's um, pretty amazing. It's called The Five Levels of Leadership. This one really transformed my life by John Maxwell. Uh, this book showed me how I was um, stuck in my business because I hadn't advanced past level two, which in his book he explains is this is where you have to establish good quality relationships with people. And instead of Instead, I was focusing all on what's your production, how are you, how much are you selling, what's your, you know, how are you, how much are you working and grinding? And 
when I transformed into more of, hey, I'm going to have good quality relationships where you, you love and respect me and I do the same, that's what really uh, got my businesses cranking. So, and also enjoyed life at a much higher level. Brilliant. Well, that, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. We'll include links to those in the show notes. Um, so for people who want to get in touch with you and people who want to learn more about your wealth building methods, how do they find you? Where's the best place and uh, yeah, what are handles? Great. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, this has been an absolutely fantastic uh, interview and I, I love diving into all this uh, at this level of detail with you guys. Um, myindestructiblewealth.com is my uh, main site that I do all the financial education on. And I'd highly recommend they just hop on my free e-letter and get to know me. Don't really have anything um, to sell, uh, but it's a great way for them to get in their inbox every Saturday, uh, some really great wealth building principles for entrepreneurship, real estate investing, um, overall crypto investing. Um, that's, uh, I think that's where they should go. Brilliant. And, um, you, you're on, are you on Twitter? We've got Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram links that I'm going to put on for you, but we haven't got a Twitter one. Not on Twitter enough to get relevant. <laughs> but look, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And um, we look forward to having you back sometime. Uh, good luck with your businesses. Good luck with your course and everything else and real estate investing. Um, and just a reminder, your um, your website is myindestructiblewealth.com. And we'll put links in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Paul, Tim, it's been a pleasure. You guys are incredible interviewers. So I can see why your podcast is so successful. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jack. Kind. Thank you, Jack. Take care. Thank you, guys. Bye now. Bye. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.